You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn to God's Word. And uh, what we do in the church here is we believe that the Bible is God's Word written for us. And uh, we like to look at different parts of the Bible, but we're trying to follow it through systematically, and we're looking at a a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in Greece, and we're going to read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 from verse uh, 3. Before we do that, let me just uh, say where we are, what's happened here a church, this church began when Paul went and preached about Jesus Christ, told people about Jesus Christ. Many of the Greeks came to believe, but things became a bit of a mess. There was trouble in the church. Paul himself faced difficulty, uh, health probably, certainly in fear of his life, and there was a lot of criticism as well. So he writes this letter to help the Corinthians see what is really important in life. He talks about what life is all about for him, and how it is to follow Jesus, and how death is also uh, about Jesus. He's just encouraged them at the part we come in to accept that today is the day of salvation, and it's the day of opportunity. And then he begins to talk about uh, some of his own experiences. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited, Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Um, Some of you will know uh, I have an office there. I also have another office down at the Sicilian John Piero knows it very well, and uh, I'm there quite a lot. Ask him how often I am there, that's probably not fair. Uh, But it's very interesting when you go uh, down to the Sicilian or to any cafe or restaurant, and you are served by people. It's not self-service, and I have to say they're very good staff down there, love it, and the food is excellent too. Paul here writes about these servants. Oops. Can you move that on, Adeline? I'm sorry. That's it. That's it, yeah. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. The word there for servants is diakoni, which is a word that you would use for table waiters. And what Paul is saying, he's saying that we are like table waiters. Now, what that means is this. If you go down to the Sicilian, 
you do not expect one of the waitresses or waiters to come up to you and to plunk a bag of tatties on your table, some cheese, some cream, I don't know, some herbs, some spices, and say, right, get on with it. It's not like a master chef invention test. You order something and you expect it to be cooked for you and cooked well. What Paul is saying he does is exactly like that. He serves an already prepared meal. And he's saying that's what we do when we're trying to communicate the gospel. We're not saying to people, well, here's a bunch of principles, you go work it out. He's telling them something that is completely astonishing and completely astounding. And we're going to look at what that is. Some will say, okay, I'm I'm not a Christian, I'm not particularly religious, so it doesn't really affect me. Yes, it does, because it's a choice that you have to make. Now, initially, the choice doesn't appear very attractive. I'm going to tell you about uh, a life that actually is a hard life, but I hope that you'll see that it's a life that's worth living because of a Lord that is worth loving. And so, the first thing is simply this. Christians prepare the way. He says, we do not put barriers, we do not put a stumbling block in anyone's path, a path of coming to Jesus. Those of us who are Christians, we need to think very, very carefully about this. How can we do that? It's dead easy. So, so simple. It's easy to put people off Christianity because of hypocrisy, because of our lack of the fruit of the Spirit. Instead of attracting people to Jesus, we repel them. People will say, well, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want anything to do with it. We read in Matthew 18 earlier, Ramon read in Matthew 18, 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. This is about the honor of God. Do men see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven? Do people know that we are Christians by our love? Do we honor Christ with our money, with our bodies, in our relationships? Are we filled with the Spirit? Do we pray and plead to the Lord for people? Paul goes back, chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you? Or in chapter 5 and verse 12, he says this. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again. Well, what's he doing here? He's saying we put no stumbling block in anyone's way. He's not saying, look, we're boasting about who we are. He's just simply saying, when you examine our lives, you can see that there is an integrity that is there. He's not saying, look at me. He's saying, look at my ministry, which points to Jesus Christ, and my life doesn't put barriers in the way of that. I knew a lady in Dundee who was an ambulance driver, and she told me once that every Saturday night she went down to the docks to pick up a minister who was lying blazing drunk. Now imagine she was in his church the following day, and he's preaching God's Word. What's she going to think? She's going to think, what a hypocrite. Well, she did think that. What a hypocrite. There are people who know that you go to church. 
People, your family, your neighbors, your workmates. It's a very serious question. For me, it's a really serious question. For me personally, do I put stumbling blocks in people's way? I walked down to church this morning and I always listened to Ravi Zacharias and I was listening to his latest podcast and he was telling how he was speaking in a place and this woman came along who was very uh, anti-Christian and she listened and she went back and her husband was really scared. What's she going to say? What's she going to say? Because he'd wanted her to go. And she said, it was brilliant. It was totally brilliant. And he was amazed. And then she said, but I'd like to know what he's like at home. I'd like to know if he's for real. And I think that that is a perfectly legitimate, if you're not a Christian here, it is perfectly legitimate for you to say, what are you talking about? What are you ta- I want to see it in action. I want to see what it's like. Paul's really passionate about this. He's, he's speaking. He's, there's a, a, the ancient Greek preacher Chrysostom calls this Paul's blizzard of troubles. He lists all these, these pains and troubles he has. He's, he's going bang, bang, bang. This happened, this happened, this happened. And in all this, he said, we still commend Jesus Christ. And it's an important question for those of us who are believers. Do we commend the way of Jesus? The next one, please. Christians... Christians persevere. He says, in great endurance, in troubles, in hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hungers. Christians are persistent. We stick through thick and thin, through good and bad, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health. You may recognize those words from the marriage service. In the membership class this morning, we were talking about this. We were saying, what does it mean to be a Christian? And one of the things that it means to be a Christian, it is like being married, committing your whole life to somebody, committing your life to Jesus. And what you're doing is exactly the same uh, when you get married in, in one sense. You don't stand up the front here when you get married and say, I commit myself to you for a couple of months to see what it's like. I commit myself to you as long as things are going well. I commit myself to you as long as you stay healthy, as long as there's no trouble. Paul says what Christians do when you become a Christian, you realize it's going to be tough, and there are times when you just stick. See, some of you here are Christians, and you're not just sticking. I mean, you're, you're bouncing, you're flying, you're floating. Everything's wonderful, everything's great, everything's fantastic. You could sing songs of praise uh, all day. You're quite happy uh, to read God's word and pray, and things are going really, really well for you. And then some of you are just hanging on. You're hanging on by the skin of your teeth. You're hanging on by the tips of your fingertips. Why? Because there's trouble in afflictions and troubles. In hardships, the Greek word there for hardship is agony, in agonies. There are times of great stress. The Christian is not always smiling, not always chilled out. If you're not a Christian, you think, well, we're going to present an image of Christianity, which is, whoa, now we're happy. We're kind of high on Jesus all the time. That, that's not what it's like. It can be really, really difficult. There are distresses. Here, that carries the idea of overwhelming situations. 
where you get a piece of news and then there's another piece of news and then there's another piece of news and it's all bad news and you sit down and you put your head in your hands and you say, I can't cope. I just can't take any more of this. Dire straits, literally. It's the, the idea there is of a narrow cliff or two narrow cliffs. You're in, a, in this pathway and there are cliffs on either side and they're pressing in on you and they're pressing in on you and they're pressing in on you and there's no way out. And sometimes those of you who are Christians, that's what you feel. And what makes it worse is you feel guilty about feeling it. You're battered and bruised. You're beaten. Beating. 2 Corinthians 11, he says this, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. Here's boasting, strange kind of boasting. I have worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. It's almost, I mean, it's, it's so dreadful. It's almost funny. You can almost imagine Paul, third shipwreck. Oh, no, not again. Here it goes again and again. I mean, five times he got the 39 lashes. You know what that is? That's been beaten with a whip with barbs on it 39 times because 40 was considered bad luck and 40 would actually probably, if it went much beyond that, it would kill someone. I've been there, he said, through beatings, through imprisonment. Uh, An ancient Christian document, 1 Clement, argues that Paul was imprisoned seven times, in jail seven times. In riots as well, social unrest and riots. He'd go to a place and he would preach and there would be a riot. People would, would, would want to, to kill him and kill his companions. The mob were out to get him. Hard work, he says. He now goes on to labors in hard work. He didn't have to do this, but he did it. Sometimes I feel that the Christian church in this country is so weak because, forgive the expression, but we're such wusses. We don't know what it is to do hard work. Sleepless nights. Not here, I don't think, sleepless nights because of worry. Because I think here he's talking about stuff that was voluntary. But he did. But he went without sleep deliberately. Why? Because he was watching and praying. Because he was really concerned about people. I had the privilege this week of going up to Port Mahomet. Beautiful Port Mahomet, and uh, uh, it's lambing, and my dad has Jacob's sheep, and uh, I've got a wee clip that I wanted to show you, but I couldn't show you it, because uh, one of the, basically they're just left out in the field to lamb, and my dad was kicking himself, because he was a bit late going out to check, and when he went out to check, there was a lamb there who'd just been born, lying with membrane all over it, dying, basically didn't think it was going to live. So he brought the lamb in to the house and put it in a wee basket and uh, it's about half past ten at night and we dried it and believe it or not, actually, I fed it whiskey. <laughs> I give it a teaspoon of whiskey. I give it actually three teaspoons of whiskey, which was probably a bit much because uh, uh, the video, because you didn't want to give it milk because you wanted to take the mother's milk which has its own antibodies and all the rest of it, but it was the whiskey to try and warm it up and dry it out. 
So I just felt really strange feeding this lamb whiskey. And uh, it began, it seemed as though it was beginning to get better. And uh, it started walking. Now, it, it waddled. I'm not sure whether it was drunk or <laughs> what was happening, but it staggered around like a drunk, um, which was interesting. And we're watching this, we're drying and so on. And uh, I went to bed and then I got up again because I still heard, I heard this meh, meh, meh from the kitchen. So I thought, oh, well, it was after midnight. And my parents who are in their 80s, what are they doing? They're sitting, watching over the lamb, waiting until they can take it out and give it to its mother as soon as possible, because otherwise the mother will reject it. They want to make sure that the, the mother will give it milk. And they're waiting up. They're being patient. And I thought about that in terms of sleepless nights. Paul so cared about the Corinthians, about other Christians, that he was prepared to get up early to pray. He was prepared to stay up late to pray and to care for them. There's a compassion that is in there. Hunger as well. I think that was also tied in with um, fasting. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. It could have been fasting. It could also have been his desire not to be a burden to anyone at all. The point about that is this that we are not just fair-weather Christians. Romans 15 verse 4, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. 1 Corinthians 4.12, we work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answered kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Colossians 1.11, we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Jesus says, Revelation 3.10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Sometimes you want to give up. Sometimes your body's weak. Sometimes your brain is frazzled. Sometimes your emotions are all over the place. Sometimes spiritually you want to curl up into a ball and die. You want to retreat. But Paul says we don't. We don't give up. We keep going. We stop complaining because we remember Christ did not give up. And then he says this, Christians are pure. In purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love. It is God's will, writes Paul to the Thessalonians, that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you, and warned you, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. There is to be integrity in relationships as well in, in everything else. Every week, every single week, I'm being sent material about priests who abuse children or 
uh, evangelical ministers, some. There's a guy in a mega church in Florida last week. He's admitted an inappropriate relationship. And it's wrecking churches and wrecking their ministry. It's insane. Christ was pure. He calls us to be pure. He calls us to uh, commit ourselves in that way. When Christians get all caught up in money and power, then it's little surprise that sexual immorality follows. He says we're pure. And if you're a Christian and you're struggling in that way, again, don't give up. You come to the Lord, you seek forgiveness, you seek His grace. Understanding, knowledge, in chapter 2, verse 14, chapter 4, verse 6, chapter 11, verse 6, Paul says what that knowledge is. He said, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What's the knowledge that we have? It's not the knowledge of Wikipedia, it's not the knowledge of having lots and lots of facts and information. It's knowing Jesus Christ. I know whom I have believed. I know that he is able. I know that he will keep what I've committed to him until the day. We, as Christians, develop an understanding, a knowledge of Jesus. Patience. In the midst of all the trials, patient with other people. Some of us are not very patient people. And we need to learn to be patient. You know, it's, it's horrible when you see a parent with a child and the child is, you know, screaming and yelling and not behaving itself or whatever. And the, the parent is just so impatient all the time. Now, of course, we believe in discipline. But you've got to be patient with children. I love the imagery in the Bible of the, the, the shepherd and the lambs. The newborn lamb. You know, that, that newborn lamb in the, in the kitchen, it made a mess on the floor. You know, d- d- did my mum get up and say, that's my kitchen, that's a disaster, get him out. Put him to the stake straight away. No, he's got to wait a couple of years for that. But you, you don't. You understand. You, you're patient. How is it as Christians we are so impatient with one another? I love that t-shirt that says, please be patient with me. God's not finished with me yet. We're patient, he says, and we're kind. The word for kindness there is the word that, that can also be used for grace. And that means as believers, love for human beings comes from the experience of God's love for us. Ephesians 2, 7, in order that in the coming ages, he saved us, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to his kindness in Christ Jesus. God's going to show his grace through us because we show kindness to other people. Grace to other people. And love, he says, sincere love. 1 Corinthians 13, genuine love. Now, those are qualities that we should strive for as Christians and pray that God would grant us. He brings the Holy Spirit in here as well. Why does he bring the Holy Spirit into this list of qualities? Some people say, well, actually, he doesn't mean the, the Holy Spirit. He means that we, we are spiritual. I think he does mean 
the Holy Spirit. I think it makes sense. Why? Paul's not being logical. He's speaking from his heart. And he's just simply saying, we can't do this without the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And then he says, Christians preach the truth. He talks about in truth. Let's go on to the next one. In truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and everything. I think Paul is thinking here particularly about his preaching. But for all of us, we have a message and we are to communicate the truth. And we do so in dependence on God's power. I came to you, he says to the Corinthians, in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. The weapons of righteousness. Paul likes his military metaphors. He talks about being given weapons for the fight, Ephesians 6. On the right and the left, he's basically saying, our front's covered, our back's covered, our sides are covered. Why? Because we talk the truth. The devil has wrought havoc in the church in Scotland because you have so many Christians now going, how do we know what's true? How do we know what's right? That's his opinion. That's their opinion. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. And you just end up with this complete and absolute mess. Jesus gave his church the truth. He gave his church his word. And again, if you're not a Christian... Let me say to you, people don't come to this church to hear me talk. What a boring waste of time that would be. People come to hear what God has to say in his word. And if I say things that are not in God's word, I just say, people, forget it, ignore it. But what does God say? And that's what we look at. And we as Christians have to always speak the truth. Now, we speak the truth in love. We speak the truth with patience and kindness and understanding and purity and so on. But that's what we do. And then, finally, he gives this list of what happens to him. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying yet we live on, beaten yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. You know when you're giving an advert for something, like uh, John and Britta saying, come to Germany. Well, why would you come to Germany? Well, because it's wonderful people. Because the language is not that difficult compared with Greek or whatever. Because, uh, because the food's good, actually. German food is great. Because you can drive on the motorways really, really fast. Uh, because they've got Bayern Munich. Because, you know, I mean, you can, you can list a lot of reasons that you would go to Germany. And you go to that place and, and it, it's relatively cheap and you'll have a good time and you'll enjoy the kids and so on. So you advertise it in a really positive way. You'd think when we're advertising the Christian life, when Paul is advertising the Christian life, he would say a lot of really good to become a Christian. This is what he says. You have nothing. You're in dishonor. You've got bad report. You're regarded as fake, as lying for Jesus. You're unknown. You're dying. You're beaten. You're sorrowful. You're poor. You have nothing. Yeah, that sounds like something we really want to sign up to. But then look at the contrast. Glory, good report. The bad report's not going to harm him. The good report's not going to distract him. He's genuine. 
We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Known. He doesn't mean famous. He means known by believers as someone who teaches God's Word. Living. We're alive. Not killed. Paul is constantly aware of death and constantly aware of his own mortality, but he's also aware of God's power over death. So God rescued him from beatings. God rescued him from, from the sea. God rescued him from being thrown to the lions or whatever other particular threats happened. He said in the words of Psalm 118, I will not die but live and I will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastised me severely, but he has not given me over to death. I'm always rejoicing. There's so much pain, so much hurt, yet he rejoices in Christ making many rich. This is a wonderful thing. Not giving material wealth, but bringing the glorious riches of Jesus Christ. In Griesfeld, in that housing estate, in Charleston, with the work that's gone on in this past week, in the ferry, across in Fife, wherever we are, in Perth, whatever, we have got riches to give people that are beyond comprehension for them. That boy in Dundee, the got the lottery ticket for 100,000 quid. You know, he's a teenager. He's 17 years old. I've won the lottery. Isn't that brilliant? 100 grand. I wonder how many people went out and bought lottery tickets the following day thinking, oh, that could happen to me. Or went to that shop because they're a bit superstitious. Why don't you go and tell people, you come to church next Sunday on Easter and you're going to get something a whole lot more than 100,000. A whole lot more. Making many rich. We're involved in uh, Christians Against Poverty. It's great. Helping people through debt and all the problems that are occurred there. But you know what Christians Against Poverty do more than anything else? Point people to where the source of true riches are. And it's not in a bank account. And it's not in a wallet. And it's not in a credit card. It's in Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, possessing everything. Contrasting earthly riches with heavenly riches. Chapter 4, verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It's eternal. You could be the wealthiest person in the world. That kid who's got a hundred thousand quid, it'll be gone within a year. And supposing he saved it and invested it and kept it for the rest of his life, it'll still go. It'll still be gone. It will not last. There's nothing that we have that lasts except for God, except for Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying that's what makes a good Christian. That's what makes a good pastor. That's what makes a good elder. That's what makes a good follower of Jesus. I ask those of you who are Christians to think about this. Those of you who are not Christians, actually, first of all, let me ask you this. One, why not? And two, what have you got to lose? It is a hard life being a follower of Jesus. But it's a life that is so worth living. You can be in that position where you have nothing, and yet you have absolutely nothing everything. 
And if you are a Christian, like me, I ask simply, what is our ministry? What's your service? How are you serving God? How are you serving His people? How are you serving His world? Does it bring glory and honor to Christ? Do you have the commitment that breeds persistence and integrity and contentment? Do you have the kind of Christianity that changes the world, that turns the world upside down? It's how Jesus lived. In the membership class, I said to the guys who were there, I feel Martin Luther's words really strongly that a Christian is someone who needs to repent every single day. And we do. And it's great. We can. We can go to Jesus and say, Lord, I got that wrong. I I am so sorry. You know, it's the hardest thing in the world to grasp when you realize how bad you are to grasp that you're still free to serve Jesus Christ because he forgives, because it's a new day, it's a new start for you. Every time you wake up, great is your mercy, your faithfulness, your mercies are new every morning. May God grant that we would have that persistence, that integrity, and that contentment in Jesus, which Paul exemplified and which he teaches us about here. Amen. Lord, we ask for your blessing on your word. Uh, Accompany it with the power of your spirit. Teach us and enable us each to follow you. For we ask it in your name. Amen. We're going to sing When I Survey. Uh, And as we sing that, Tim, could I ask you, could you go uh, tell the older kids they can come back in and also if you could go up to the creche and get Amelia, please. Well, you don't get her, but you can get Louise. Thank you. Let's stand and sing, uh, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on Which the Prince of Glory Died, My Richest Gain I Count But Loss and Poor Contempt on All My Pride. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.